Hello, and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, author and playwright Mark Anthony Rossi. This show explores all forms of creativity for those searching for meaning and a place in the world. To err is human, but so is to love. Now, without further ado, here's your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to Be Human. This is your host, Mark Anthony Rossi, author, poet, and playwright. This will be episode number 84 in the Classic Spotlight series. Uh, this time we're going to be talking about Holland Ellison's, and that's the name of the show, Thoughts on Holland Ellison. We're looking for this for, for quite some time now, and even though this show is going to be aired on Halloween, there's no real uh, symbolism there at all. It just happens to fall that way for the calendar. So it's nice. I mean, he did some horror work, so don't get me wrong, but he wasn't a horror writer and this is not a Halloween show. It's definitely by Harl Ellison. I want to talk a little bit about uh, about his work, but also I, I think in in many ways, uh, Harlan Ellison is a quintessential writer. And I like to talk about some of his personal life and, and some of the things he did to help protect and promote writing. I think in many ways, uh, that's even more important than than some of the books he put out because it, it has an everlasting impact on us as writers, what he's able to do to defend the craft and, and make sure that writers wouldn't take advantage of. And he really had a long track record in doing so, not to mention the fact that, and we'll talk about this more, some of some of his social work and, and, the, and the work he did out there. I, I mean, as a person, as a person, not just writing work, because he did some political work as well, but I mean, just as a human being, okay? Now, Holland Ellison was uh, born uh, to Jewish parents in Cleveland, Ohio in 1934, which every time I say that, because that, you know, that happens to be the truth, it, it, it never it never connects to me because uh, I, I, I've i actually spoken to Harlan Ellison. I've met him twice. Uh, I've read a great deal of his work, and, and I've always been an admirer of him my entire life. And I tell you something, he, it never rings out to me as as a Jewish fellow because he never seemed to write anything along that lines maybe just because he considered himself an atheist that could be possible he wasn't a very religious person at all uh, I think it was just more of a <clears throat> like a racial connotation because you know his parents were Jewish uh, and also he was born in 1934 and I'm telling you maybe it sounds stereotypical and I'm not trying to be that way but when I think of 1934, I don't think of Harlan Ellison. I think of old-fashioned things. I think of, you know, the car just finally going out there and doing something real on the road. And I think of, you know, a government trying to fix an economy that went down the, the toilet bowl. And I just think of old-fashioned things. I don't think of visionary things like Harlan Ellison was. I don't think of anything that that expanded the social landscape like, like, he, like he did. So... It, it always seemed unusual, uh, you know, him him being Jewish and him being born in 1934. It's just, it's, it never really connects, and maybe it never will for me. He's just simply out of that time and out of anything about where he was born and, and who he was born to. He was really somebody just by himself, a real, a real class by himself. And to me, uh, and plenty of people would disagree, but I always found him to be a, a class act. That, that's that's always been my impression, and I've always loved them for that. Very controversial figure in many instances. We'll talk about that, but to me, that's who he's always been. All right, and I'll, of course, I'll give you the the facts and the evidence towards that. All right. Now, Harlan Ellison, instead of just staying in in one area of writing, he really moved around a lot. He started out wanting to be a science fiction writer and did science fiction for a while. Okay. But he also did horror. He was very well known for, for more speculative fiction, which is, uh, I guess, going into the late 70s and the 80s, starting to become really a, 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 in a life of its own because it wasn't something you noticed in the, in the 50s. It was just very, uh, very black and white back then. Either you're doing horror or you're doing science fiction. They didn't really have a whole lot of speculative going on. Um, he was friends with many of the writers of his day. Uh, Robert Block, who wrote Psycho, you know, had, had said that because of uh, Harlan Ellison's temperament, you know, he was a, a fellow that uh, was combative. Uh, and I, I probably one of the reasons I like him so much is I recognize some of the things of myself in, in, in him. 
you know, and, and vice versa. I, that's the kind of person that I am. And I never really cared if anyone liked that or not. Because if you're not going to defend who you are and you're not going to defend what you're writing, I, I don't know what's the point to write or walk the earth, in, in my opinion. And what's the point, you know? Live in a cave somewhere then. It, it doesn't make no sense to me. And he understood that. <laughs> and he didn't, he didn't play any games. But he did a lot of great things for us as writers. And we'll, we'll talk about that as well. Okay? So he became famous for... Um, one of the, uh, which I feel one of the most important science fiction books ever written. Um, I have to scream and I have no mouth. It's just incredible, incredible book uh, about a, 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 a computer dictatorship. Just, uh, just the title alone just gets you like wow, you know. And but Holland wrote a lot of things, whether it be spectral fiction or horror or science fiction, that always had a social connotation to it. He wasn't one of those pure people that, that wrote just about the aliens and their worlds and your interest in their languages and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you think about Tolkien, a, a fantasy writer, who I'd like to do a show on one day, but wow, I have to do some research on that because uh, he's a lot more complex than the, than the average writer, even more than complex than Harlan Ellison ever was. But if you think about it, he, uh, Tolkien was a fantasy writer, but he was also strictly interested in the linguistics of creating another language, creating another culture, creating another world. And the storyline, even though it was important and interesting and unique, really didn't have that many social connotations to it. It really didn't have any real political meaning to it at all. I mean, otherwise, if you're thinking about this, the sense of honor and sticking with your friends and what friendship can do and how evil unchecked can destroy you know, a planet... Other than that, it maybe had more of a moral connotation, but it didn't really have any social, you know, significance in, in that kind of way. You could draw World War One and World War Two into that and say, yeah, I see this and I see that, but it's kind of vague. So I, I don't like to, you know, just throw that out there and, and say that was it, because it, it really wasn't, in my, in, in my opinion. And from from reading his uh, his personal letters, it, it simply wasn't. He he really was into that kind of world and creating that, and that was it. Holland Ellison, on the other hand. Completely opposite. There wasn't a project this guy did at all. I don't care what it is that you can, can quote of him, that he didn't have some sort of social context in there. He didn't have some message in there. I mean, that's that's what he wrote about. That's what he cared about. And that's, that's pretty much who he was. And he had no problem running away from that. I know I've had problems with that many times over the years because I always wanted to be a different writer than I became. I don't say that now out of frustration or any regret because I don't. But earlier on, I always said, you know, why am I always writing in a social way? I mean, I don't really feel that I'm a social activist kind of person. And I'm, I never really felt that way. I mean, I spoke up when I felt I had to speak up and that was that. You know, I didn't, I didn't make a career out of it. You know, for every every bully that I, I beat the hell out of, I'd go around making stories to, to, to bars about, it, you know, all of it and making a big thing out of it. Unfortunately, that was one of Holly Ellison's <laughs> bad points was is that he could be rough and he just kept telling the story about us, everybody. And that's how everybody knew about it because he had no problem bragging about it. He just didn't care about that sort of thing. That's just who he was, you know, and that's depending on how you look at it, good or bad. For me, that's that doesn't work for me, but that's that's kind of what worked for him. That's the kind of the, that's the kind of person he was. If he felt he was right, he's he was going to talk about it. And that was that. But he was definitely, regardless of all these different, uh, you know, genre titles thrown on him, horror writer, science fiction writer, speculative fiction writer, blah, blah, blah. To me, he was always a social writer in disguise of all of that. You know, and that's what I always felt he was his strongest at and he made his most point at. And if you look at some of his personal life, you'll, you'll see the same thing. So let's talk a little bit about that. Okay. And it'll be in conjunction with it, with, with his writing. All right. Now he he wrote a book called Strange Wine, and it's been considered to be one of the one of the greatest science fiction uh, books ever written. Uh, and again, has enormous amount of political context in there, enormous amount. Um, Harlan Ellison uh, was one of the few writers out there that visibly went out there with with Martin Luther King uh, on the Selma march. He was out there doing things like that. Um, we, if you remember from the um, Octavia Butler show I did. Uh, not only did he befriend her, he gave her money to go to school. She could finish her education on, on writing. He, he, he gave her a lot, of, uh, a lot of information, a lot of contact, a lot of inspiration, a lot of support. 
and and she was one of the few people he said that uh, she uh, not only admired and, and and drew inspiration from. So um, he had a real impact in, in, in her career and her life. And remember, this guy is doing this years and years, I'd say probably decades, before any of this politically correct nonsense where people do things now just so they can look like they're important or they look like they're they're on the social edge of things when they're usually not. This man was. All right? He didn't care about whether she was black or not. You know what he cared about? What he cared about is what the same thing he's always cared about. He cared about the writing. He saw somebody, yep, she can write. Yep, we need to be putting, promoting her and doing whatever we can to help her. And that's what he did. It's the kind of man that he was. It, it really is a testament to his character and, and his vision and his, mor- his moral sense. I mean, we'll talk a lot about, about his moral outrage because there's plenty of it in his books, in his life, in his marriages, <laughs> and, and some of the things he did in, in, in public and, and, and at conventions, at signings. I mean, there's, there's a lot to go over and we won't be able to cover it all in one episode, but... Uh, We'll certainly cover a lot of it. But character is still important. And it is important, especially for an artist, in, in my opinion. Because you can have, and don't get me wrong, you can have artists that have almost zero character. I mean, I, I'll give you a perfect example. Pablo Picasso. Here's a guy that had almost no character, okay? He, he practically corroborated with the Nazis when he invaded Paris, only caring about protecting his paintings, you know? Uh, he was a communist and not even a very good one because he didn't even understand half of the damn concepts. It's just almost like a just a, a wonderful thing to talk about when he's drinking coffee, you know, over, over in, in Spain. You know, he abused wives, he uh, terrorized people, was pretty much a, a, a bully, you know, uh, a spendthrift, even though he was, he was vastly uh, wealthy. Uh, in many instances, the man really didn't have much of a character at all. He was just a, a very selfish individual. Uh, pretty mean-spirited and um, also wait, one of the most <laughs> artistic geniuses that, to go on a campus in, in the history of mankind. <laughs> Sometimes that's how it works. So I never tell anybody you have to have character to be a great artist. So you have to have character to draw inspiration and something interesting. No, you don't. You could do a bunch of weird penises and strange stuff <laughs> like he did and, and, and still become a, a famous and, and, and brilliant. <laughs> What can I say? It's going to fall that way. Not all of them are going to have that. Sure, you're going to find a lot of artists, including Harold and Ellison, that uh, appear to be uh, abrasive people, uh, people very combative. So you're going to see that, and it's not unusual. It's not, it's not unusual in the writing world. It's not unusual in the artistic world. But I tell you now, he's unusual in the sense that I felt that he was very classy in the way he, he conducted himself even when he was uh, combative, and he was a man full of character and full of consistency, in my opinion, full of things that are not contradictory. The man was a straight line on many things, and you'll be able to see that as I point that out. So he didn't play games and zigzagging here and there and all over the place. He was serious about some of the things he cared about, and he continued to talk about those, defend those, and pursue those right up until his death. Now, as you can see here, he's a figure in the civil rights. He spent money to do so. He he made sure he helped anyone he can helped out in that in that instance. And he's a real visionary, especially on, on noticing Octavia Butler, a woman who, by her own words, felt invisible in a in a society that pretty much didn't even want her around. Didn't even believe women could write. Didn't believe women could write science fiction. Didn't believe black women could write science fiction. <laughs> Talking about lots of things against her. And here this guy comes. Hey, I'm Jewish, but I'm not really Jewish. Hey, I'm an atheist, but, you know, I, I have a spiritual dimension. Hey, in the end, I just want the world to be better, and I'm going to do something about that. And that's what he did. And it made a real impact on, on a writer's life who, in her own right, made a, made a huge impact afterwards. Winning, oftentimes, some of the same awards he won. So it's a great thing to see. It was really in the, the same uh, same pair. Um Harlan Ellison has won every single award you could possibly think of for writing. Uh, horror and science fiction. Nebula, Edgar Allan Poe Award. It just, it, and oftentimes five, six, ten times. Okay? So he, he, didn't, he didn't play around. He won the Hugo. Um, many people are not aware of this because uh, they can be uh, aware of some of his novels and maybe some of the works he's done. But many people are not aware of that he had a real active component in, in film and television and in doing voiceovers. He, he kept 
of his SAG, uh, the Screen Actors Guild membership, his entire life and did voiceovers and got paid for those. He he got a a, a, a walking a, a walking role on, on Babylon Five, which he was a creative consultant on. A, it was a, a science fiction show from the 1990s. Harlan Ellison was one of the first people to tell a science fiction writer, "Listen, why don't you stop all this crap about explosions in space?" And we're listening to that on the TV show. He goes, space is a vacuum. You can't hear sound. No matter what kind of explosion it is, you shouldn't be able to hear it. It just, it might be a bright flash, and that's to be about it. But you can't actually hear it. Babylon 5 was one of the first shows to ever do that. Explosions will happen. You don't hear anything. It freaked people out of work. They were like, well, something's wrong with my TV. What the heck? No. He was just pointing out that it might be science fiction, but, you know, try to observe some laws of science here once in a while, okay? Because you can't have science fiction and it's all fiction and no science. That's not an exact quote for him, but that is a lot of his thinking. And he definitely quoted making sure there was no explosions in space that you can hear. He was right about that scientifically. And, and I think it, it, it was a cool thing to have happen. It, to me, I thought it had more drama having it that way rather than not hearing it. I think it was a, a lot wilder that way than just having the standard blah, explosion like, you know, they just ripped it out of some, some canned sound thing of a sound effect someplace. It's run that again, you know? Like, if you ever listen to the old show Battlestar Galactica, it's like every explosion sounds the same, no matter what planet it was on, what spaceship it was, anything. It, it, a million pounds of bombs, or two pounds of bombs, all the same stuff. It, it gets idiotic. So he was really right to point that out. And I, I'm, I'm really happy he did that. Now, Harlan Ellison was one of the very first writers... And, and I mean, he kept doing this to the end of his life, okay? He would sue like you would not believe if he felt copyright was infringed on his work, writing in general, and he almost always won. So he didn't just do this because people who didn't like him, he's just a crank, he's just a weirdo, he's the press of strange person, blah, 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 he's just an angry man, blah, blah, blah. Hey, maybe some of those things they're saying has some truth to it. Okay, fine. But he was right. And he almost always won. And you don't win on creative things in court very much unless you have the goods, unless you got the proof. And he did. And he did it all the time and time and time again. It's very hard now for for studios or for TV shows to, to, to do a lot of ripping off of writers these days because that man set such a precedent. There is enormous amount of precedent because of what he's done. So let's go on to the first one. The first one, and, and again, a lot of people are not aware of this, but... Harlan Ellison wrote City on the Edge of Forever. It's considered the greatest Star Trek episode ever written and ever put on. Any any list you ever see of the top 10 shows of Star Trek out of the 79 episodes that, that, that aired on television, City on the Edge of Forever, always number one. I don't care what list it is. Stevie Wonder can put together a list and he's going to come up with the same thing. That's how awesome that show was. He wrote that script, but... In typical Harlan Ellison fashion, because they did a lot of editing to it, a lot of changing to it, it got him very upset. But he still wanted his name on it because he still wanted the credit from doing so. Because he knew that, regardless, it was a story to be proud of. He eventually released his actual teleplay, which was a lot longer, a lot more detailed, in another book of, of science fiction teleplays that came out years later. I think it came out like, I don't know, almost 10 years later, okay? And I read that, because it's out there. And um, love Harlan Ellison. Love his writing. I really liked what he did. But I uh, I don't always disagree with Harlan Ellison, by the way. But I, I will do this, and then there'll be a few times when I do. In this case, I disagreed with him. Because, I mean, you minus the commercials out of there, okay? You got Gene Roddenberry already fighting the network. Oh, my God, you can't have black people on the show. Oh, my God, you can't have people interracially kissing. Oh, my God, you can't have some weird dude with funny ears. I mean, they were like killing them about every little stupid thing, most of it based on their own prejudices and racisms, which, of course, he's trying to break by doing the show. Gene Roddenberry, in many ways, had some of the same thoughts on, on the social condition of America as Harlan Ellison did. They just were different people. I mean, they didn't like each other, <laughs> but they were real different people. And um, But there's no way they could have done, I know I probably sound like um, William Shatner over here, <laughs> but there was no way they could have done the screenplay he wanted 
in like 42 minutes. It, it just was never, ever going to be able to happen. It'd be like a three-hour show. The guy was lucky he can get an hour show in without having people beating him up all the time. Why are they skirts so high? Why does this guy look like a, a weird old beetle? I mean, it's just unbelievable the stuff they were saying about that show. So it wasn't physically possible, okay? And, and, and quite frankly, there were some things in his script that you could have ditched. I mean, sometimes detail is not always useful or always helpful. Maybe it's great on reading, but I don't know about a TV show. I mean, you want some character development, but, you know, come on. I got an hour and I got to go cut the lawn here. I, I don't have time for somebody's back history from like 20,000 years ago. I mean, really, we don't need that. So that's why I, I differ on him on that. Uh, he did, He did sue them. Paramount and, and, and Star Trek, including Gene Roddenberry's show. And, and he was right on that because um, they have a right to change it. That's that's how these things work. But his contract was really clear about that, the money he should be getting and the royalties. And it almost seemed like they were retaliating against him because he gave them such a hard time. And he won in court because they owed him a lot of money, period. It became a huge hit. Uh, the show that, you know, the, the show in general and his show and, and, you know, the merchandise and all that kind of stuff. So um, they had to pay him for that. And and they did. So he was definitely right about that. You got to stick to your contract. Don't complain about writers saying this and that. Don't complain with my favorite thing. This is just a business. It's so business. And then when you come down to business, they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, well, we got a contract. Here's your name on it. Where the hell's my money? So he was very good for that. And that's another important thing that he did which helped lots of people, especially writers, down the line, okay? Um, another thing that people are not aware of, and James Cameron is still angry to this day. He considered a nuisance lawsuit, and that's all fine. But, you know, James Cameron can be blind to many things as much as he might be a visionary in his own right. But um, Holland Ellison wrote a, a, a teleplay called Soldier, and it was produced for, for The Outer Limits, now, just like um, he was uh, famous, and if you're not aware of this, uh, for that um, City on the Edge of Forever for Star Trek, he was also equally famous for another show uh, called Outer Limits, which was sort of like a, a weird competitor to Twilight Zone. But it was, it was really a good show, nevertheless. He wrote a, 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 a really good episode with a guy from The Man from Uncle, I believe he was in that. It was called The Demon with a Glass Hand. It was a really, really good show. One of the best uh, for Outer Limits as well. Uh, but he wrote this other show uh, for that uh, Outer Limits called Soldier. And uh, it's strangely similar to The Terminator. So he sued them and won. And quite agreed with him that his story seemed eerily similar to The Terminator. James Cameron threw a fit. Apparently everybody's throwing a fit on this thing. Even though everybody's making plenty of money and etc. And, and etc. Cetera, et cetera. And it became a great hit in its own right. But... One of the things I will say to you folks is simply this, and keep this in mind in your own writing and wherever you decide to go, okay? Yes, there are similarities that could be out there, and it doesn't mean that you, you, you shouldn't sue. But what you got to keep in mind is, and just like he was keeping in mind, listen, I'm doing a teleplay that once I sell it, they own it. I might still get the credit that that's my work, but they own it. I can't do anything else anymore with it. So they get bought up by another company and another company. And the next thing you know, that company's making a film and it looks pretty damn similar. Why should I not wonder if I've been robbed or not? That's been his position on a number of the lawsuits he had because every darn time the court agreed with him that, hey, maybe uh, some of these ideas are out there, Mr. Ellison, but you are right. <laughs> they have your work. And then that parent company or somebody else that bought that company wind up doing something pretty damn similar. So uh, you can't really blame him. You could call it good research or stroke of luck. Or you could just call it like lots of people did. Oh, it's a nuisance. So there goes Harlan Ellison and blah, blah again. But hey, writers need to defend themselves. And, and quite frankly, I would do the same thing he was doing if I felt that was the case. I mean, who just likes to go around doing lawsuits because it's fun? I mean, it costs money. It's not, that's a, not like it's free, you know? And if you're wrong, you still got to pay the lawyer all that money. And guess what? He's lost a few. But he won more than he, than he ever lost. And, and he was usually right about that. It's just hard to ignore that. So I, I don't really, I never really counted that against him. It's, oh, he's lawsuit crazy. Oh, he's hard to work with. Oh, I don't know. How about you just stop trying to rob the guy, okay? Stop trying to, you know, BS us on stuff. 
You know, when it looks too damn similar, then, you know, they're going to rule in the writer's favor. And same thing that happens with songwriting sometimes. We've seen this times and time again. You know, Michael Bolton, Men at Work. Uh, who else? Um, I think that guy uh, that did the Ghostbusters song. Uh, Roy something. can never remember the guy's name. Oh, Ray. Ray Parker. That's it. Ray Parker. He got sued because... Uh, you know, the, the, the people put together the song wind up taking a lot of that from Hugh Lewis in the news, one of his songs. So this stuff happens. And, and, and it doesn't always happen deliberately. Sometimes it's an accident, but still it happens. In many of the cases, it was deliberate. With writing, sometimes it's really hard to know if it's deliberate or not. But, but the problem is simply this. You can't believe in coincidence when they have your work, they have access to your work, and they put something out there that looks pretty damn similar to your work. You'd be crazy to ignore that. You know, and I, and me, many instances, you know, you can call Hall and Ellison a whole lot of things, but you really can't call that guy crazy. Not only was he smart and visionary, but, you know, he was right to, de to defend himself and to defend his work. And I'm glad he did that because it really does show a great deal about who he is and it shows a lot about how important writing is. And, of course, it, it really helps protect us. You know, going going forward from the things that he established, there's so much precedent there, and and God bless him for that. Now, another really interesting thing about uh, Holland Ellison was, and like I said, I, I had some traits on this as well too. My my entire life, you know, you call it whatever you want to call it, but you know, he was definitely more combative and, and abrasive. He didn't take crap. He just didn't take a bunch of baloney. He was a, a, a serious fellow. He's a, a he had a great sense of humor, but He's a serious man about, about you know, being respected and and and, and you know earning that respect and, and and of course giving that respect. You know, you hear all these stories about him. He fought with this. He did this. He did that. But you know, you never hear enough about the respect he did on, on other writers. And, and you know, he was good friends with so many of them. And why did they have anything bad to say about him? Because that's the kind of man he was. You know, the people that had something bad about him was, you know, the, the critics because they didn't like some of the stuff he did. He talked about a lot of the politics of his day and he didn't play around. Um, but Harl Ellison had a had a real a real temper streak and many instances far worse than I ever did. And I had I had a lot of it still do. Maybe not to the same degree, but he father he definitely went a whole lot farther than I did. Uh, he only got through one year of college before he got kicked out because he punched out the professor for criticizing his writing. Now, I'm, I'm not defending this, and I certainly wouldn't use this as a, a good example for my children. But nevertheless, I, I can understand where he's coming from on that as a writer. Uh, and I find it uh, amusing. I'm not sure if you will or not. But um, he mailed that uh, professor a bunch of bricks just to show him, you know, that he thought he was just a, a brickhead. And then for the next 20 years, he mailed that professor every single story that he sold and was out there published successfully. Just to let the guy know that, you know, his opinion was stupid and that he wasn't going to stand for it. I got you, Harlan. That's academic for you. They, they can be that way at times. They don't really see anything because they're just stuck in a, in a world that never seems to evolve. They're always talking about yesterday. And writers, I mean, writers should be about tomorrow, you know. Leave academia for yesterday. That's why we don't always make the best fit for that because, you know, they're looking about, you know, what happened before. Why are you not like the other guy before? I don't know. I'm not born in those years. I don't care about those subjects. I'm thinking about now and going forward. God forbid me. Hey. So that's one of the instances he did. Uh, uh, there's been a number of instances where, he, you know, he cursed out, um, threatened people. Uh, sometimes sued them just because he felt they defamed him. In some instances, he won, especially on the internet. He found that people were taking or borrowing from his work, and, and he sued and won on that. Uh, Holland being, again, one of the first writers to do things on, on the digital landscape for lawsuiting and writing, he did that to help protect more writers so they don't just go on stealing his stuff. We now have precedent in court, folks. So if you ever see something like that, there's precedent there. Look it up. Look up his name, Allison. You'd be surprised. Over 240 lawsuits just on that alone. Just on the digital end of things. I'm not talking about all the other ones. Okay, So he had some real precedent for us for the future as well. Because he saw the value in that. And he knew where that was going. But he didn't want to get robbed. And I don't blame him. 
Now, Hall Ellison was a very temperamental man and very emotional man, and he definitely was somebody that could fly off the hammer, no doubt. Uh, he was married five times. The first four times to women that he wasn't even married for a year or two. In one instance, he was only married to her for seven weeks. Got divorced. Sorry about changing your mind. Uh, he finally settled on a woman, the fifth wife, and he wound up being married with her to 32 years until he died. So, um, I guess it goes to show you that, um, you know, maybe you just got to figure out what's best for you and then you can finally find it and, you know, go from there. And that's what he did. I just unfortunately took four people to get to that number five. But God bless him. Maybe it's better that um, you didn't have long marriages because at least you were able to figure out it was wrong and then move on until you could figure out what to do next. It's a highly unusual number, I know. But uh, Johnny Carson uh, was sort of a similar way. So... I mean, you know, different people, although, but I understand, you know, that 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 need to, uh, you know, to have that uh, other individual in your life. Uh, I don't share the same kind of feelings about that as some of these guys do. They're from a different generation than I am. You know, I got married much later in life, so I had plenty of time where that wasn't a problem for me, and I didn't miss anything, and that's cool. And unlike them, uh, this will be my first and, and be my last. There, <laughs> there won't be no others. I guarantee you that. So, now there was nothing uh, on toward in regarding the relationship. So you're not going to hear anything about abuse or alcoholism or drugs or anything crazy. Not even any infidelity. It just didn't work out. <laughs> Most of the times he dissolved them himself. They didn't even do that. He did it. I think actually... Every every single time of it, I think actually it was. I don't think there was any that he actually had the woman file for. He actually did each one himself. So um, at least he understood what was going wrong and you know took care of it as, as, as quick as he could. I don't know if that's a, ver a virtue or a character, but you know social relationships are not always the easiest things, especially for writers. So I guess you gotta you know do your best until you you come up with somebody that that's gonna work for you, and that's what he did finally. And um, you know, I give him I give him credit for that. Um, interesting, though, is he he described himself later on in life as a Jewish atheist, which I always thought was a a weird contradiction in terms. But maybe not because if he just felt himself Jewish in the racial sort of sense, or maybe even the, the cultural sense, but just not in the religious sense. I guess that would work out. Uh, he never really cared much about religion, and I thought when he did write about it, he was usually writing about it as as a tool that was often used to hurt people rather than help them. And then that's the case in history and in the world, that that does happen. You know, but I, I've always had more respect for it, and it's something that, that's important in my life. So I never always saw all the uh, writers like Isaac Asimov, him, and, and a number of others that, you know, just completely throw it off like it's something not useful. Because, you know, quite frankly, we have seen uh, with an atheistic dictatorship, what it can do to the earth. I mean, if you just combine the people that both, just, just combine Stalin and Hitler, just for the, the point of an example, all right, that's over 100 million people that they murdered personally with, with their philosophy and, and their organizations, okay? And you can add up every religious-sponsored war on from the beginning of time that we know of to now, it won't even come close to that number, so... I always remind people, don't get too fascinated with atheism like it's some kind of incredible philosophy that's going to make us more human and more humane. And No, it doesn't. And many times, it makes us more animal-like and more vicious. I don't have to worry about someone looking over my shoulder. I can just murder people. What's the big deal? I'm just going to dust anyway. That's the kind of thinking that leads to. So don't be too impressed with it, okay? I'm not saying that religion is some perfect antidote to that. But I am saying that even religious, when wars happened, they didn't come to those kind of numbers. So it just shows you that it still had a, a better impact on, on the soul, if you believe in that, or, or, the, or the character of a person than, than atheism ever ever did and probably will ever will. It seems to me, in my, my opinion, science and, and atheism is abused a whole lot more than religion ever can be. And it's used to harm more people than ever. You know, We've had people out there rape women. You know, hey, I don't believe in a God anyway. Since we're all animals, uh, why should this be considered anything other than me having fun? You know, so it could be perverted really fast. It really can. But 
even though he did that and a lot of that, a lot of that in this is work and and I enjoy a lot of that work don't get me wrong but I don't always agree with all of that so we we diverge on on that he did come up with the classic phrase which I've always loved it came right out of uh, you know I have no mouth and I must scream uh, what he used to call the deification of stupidity and he's right it was a beautiful phrase he came up with I love it I think I even used it on purpose one in one of my essays just because I'm like ah I love this thing so much I, I don't even want to waste my time trying to build something similar to it screw it I'm just going to use it you know it's not like I need to put it in some quotation someplace or some footnote you know that I borrowed it from him because it's not plagiarism it's just a just a series of words I did the same thing with Alex Huxley with time immemorial that was one of the things he liked to say a lot I, I put that in one of my essays too I just like doing that sort of a way of homage just to you know say hey thanks guys for being out there you know but I love that phrase I think it's incredible but it doesn't it definitely does speak the 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 language uh, of his beliefs that um the the social the social mores of the world would be better if we had less religion in it. This is his belief. I, I, like I said I've shown already more than enough evidence that that's not really the case. In the end, people are responsible for the choices they make. And they're accountable for their actions. They can't blame science and they can't blame religion. In the end, they have to blame themselves. And that, that's really it. And I'm just using the, the generalized purposes. If you're going to use this in the generalized way, well, look at religion in a generalized way. Look at the numbers. So what does that mean, huh? You know, somebody told me when I did that one time, well, you haven't really calibrated, Mark, the fact that the technology during the time you're quoting uh, made it easier for people to kill with uh, poison gas and machine guns and bombs and you know, this machinery in general and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay. Even if you account for that and, and give a percentage to that, you're still not going to come to the numbers because there is far much ferocity with atheism on making people just simply think that they're animals, and, and that's all they are, and they have the right to make their own philosophy up, and, and if they can dominate somebody, it's nothing wrong with that. We see it in nature all the time. Why shouldn't we do this? Remember, this is a lot of that, that kind of thinking. Both both Stalin and Hitler had the same kind of thinking about that sort of thing. They believed in evolution. They believed in all that stuff. So in the end, they had no problem making that, I have the master principle or uh, I have the master race. They, they, they had no problem thinking that way because... You could use some science to help you support that for a certain a certain aspect of it all. Now, it's not real. It's not true. Don't get me wrong. But they're going to use that because they can. It's harder to use religion in that way. Much harder. But it's easier to use science that way. Because you can even have reasonable, rational people say, Hey, you know, I think they have a point. And, and, but you're not going to have people who say, I'm going to say, Listen, I don't really agree with religion anyway. So, I mean, I'm not going to go do that. So it's easier. It's easier to get away. And to do things more horrible with science. So I never really understood their, their social outlook on that. To me, it's always been a bit of a, a prejudice of theirs or a paranoia of theirs or just maybe a hang-up of theirs. But uh, I never really found any real credence to that. I know a lot of science fiction has that. That's all wonderful. But I never took that, I never took that seriously. And I, I, to me, I, I dismiss it. That's just me. You, you might go running with it and say, I love these books and I'm glad they bash religion and... Those guys are great. I wish they were still around. Cool. It's okay to have that opinion too. I'm just we just don't share it. That's all. But I do like the fact that he was right on so many things. I mean, he was definitely right about uh, Vietnam being 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 dumb and us really not looking carefully as we got into it. Um, he never made some of the military points that I made later on, but history proved him right that you know his objection to it. What was definitely was definitely correct, because um, we learned later on in history that we we chose we chose well in in uh, in the Korean conflict because we chose the side South that truly did not want to get dominated by the North because they adopted communism, and and then had China help them continue to support them, so they're like, listen, if you want to have that philosophy up there, and we can have this philosophy down here you know, a capitalistic free society, go do that. But you're not going to come over here and take this over. That's not going to work out. So us helping an ally that way in a, in a, a, a genuine and, and I felt a righteous civil war made sense. And it's the reason why it came out and, and quite frankly in our favor. I know military people, oh, it's not a victory, it was a stalemate. 
whatever the hell. You, you kept these idiots from invading a country that shouldn't have been invaded, that didn't want to get invaded. That's a victory in my point, okay? We did that and that was over with. Now, if you want to go farther to say, I wish we could have took over the North and made it free and this and that, well, that wasn't in the cards. You know why that wasn't in cards? Because a lot of those folks, they agreed with that philosophy. That's the reason why that war came out the way it did. The people in the South were vigorous about believing in how they wanted to believe in a free society, and they fought their way tooth and nail to stay that way to this day. And the North did the same thing. And that's the reason why it's then that way. Vietnam was a complete mess. We didn't look at it carefully at all. We went in there uh, more paranoid and blind than we ever did before. And we wound up supporting a South that was corrupt and that its own people agreed should have been communists. That's why we lost, because we didn't have the support of the people. We didn't even have the support of the government, really. It was, it was a corrupt government. They could care less about what was going on. They thought somehow we're just going to win with our military and overwhelm them. But guess what? In a civil war, you might be able to win it if you're on one side or the other. You're not going to win it if both sides are against you. And that's really what happened over there. History shows it pretty clearly. We had no chance. We just wasted 58,000 lives. and We didn't have no chance of victory because nobody wanted that victory on either side. It's just one of those things we, we learned later on. It's one of the things that actually really um, informed us. I know General Powell had used it, and he called it later on the Powell Doctrine, but he had mentioned that in Iraq. He, he, he said, uh, my, my, my lessons from, from Vietnam is, is that we know what our objective is, we know where the support lies at, and we know where the hell we can get out of there when it's over with, having the exit plan, having an entrance plan, having the support in the middle, and then having an exit plan to get the hell out of there, and not dragging on for a thousand years. And that's what he all learned from Vietnam, and, and that served us well in, in many of the military interests that we've had since then. So, there you go. Ellison was right about that. He was also right about the, um, the incredible unfairness of, uh, of calling our black citizens names, but then, you know, have no problem drafting them into a war, you know, where, where they're literally saying, listen, I like Muhammad Ali, and he got and going to jail for that. But he's, I mean, he was right. <laughs> None of these people call me the N-word, but I got to go over there and kill them? Uh, are you nuts? I'm still trying to deal with you folks over here first. <laughs> So if I don't think you're treating me well here, what am I going to believe in this war? It looks like it's just a racist extension to what you're doing to me. You're just going somewhere else. That's, that was his belief. Harlan believed the same thing. History shows that there's some real truth to that. I mean, it's not exactly the case because nobody in the Pentagon was saying, we need to shoot some yellow people because it's a lot of fun. Nobody was saying that. It, it really was the political philosophy is, we don't want to try to roll back communism. We don't want to keep going through the East, the Asia and stuff. That's not really in our interest. And blah, blah, blah. Okay? That really was what their theory was. It's just that, unfortunately, in, in the, the case of Vietnam, other than, you know, other than uh, uh, the Korean situation, they, they, picked, they picked the wrong thing and it didn't work out. You know? It really didn't. didn't work out in, in Cambodia for us either because, again, you know, you can't do stupid things with no support. You know, in those instances, those things were gone. We just didn't want to admit that, and we wind up, you know, throwing a lot of lives away for that. But on many of those instances in, in society where it concerns uh, racism, where it concerns uh, war in our, in our policy and the way we, we were doing things in society where we can have a better uh, and a brighter country, he, he felt that we were wrong on. And, 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 I, and felt... Through history and through his writings, we know that is right. That that was he was right in the, in the case. Now, Harlan Ellison didn't seem to have any problem with women per se. It doesn't matter if he was married five times or not. I mean, obviously, if the woman stood with him thirty-two years, she wasn't having any major issues. Otherwise, she would have been gone too. So, but there's been a lot of accusations of, of sexual harassment. I know at one of the writing awards, he actually grabbed a woman's breast. I think he was doing it just because she was annoying him by saying some stuff on the stage. And he, he did it just sort of like a way to, to kind of get rid of her. Um, it's been labeled uh, to this day as a sexual assault. He didn't get sued by it, but a lot of people felt it that way. Um, hard for me to say, because uh, I, I read what happened. So um, he never denied what happened because it did happen. There's no conjecture to it. There's no secondhand third story propaganda he did do that 
I don't know if you call that sexual assault or not. Maybe by today's standards, possibly. And maybe that's how that's viewed. Yeah, I, I guess it probably would be. I don't know. I, I certainly wouldn't defend the, the behavior. Uh, I know his own kind of thinking is uh, he could be that way. He could be a, 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 a bit rough when, it, when he felt he was being mistreated. And that's what he felt in that instance. He was being mistreated by a host of some sort of a show. And that's what he did. I don't know, maybe if that was a guy, you could push them away or something like that. But then, I don't know, you, I guess you can call that assault if you want to. I mean, he's famous, he's wealthy, who knows? So, like I said, I don't know. I don't see that as some kind of pattern in this guy. Uh, I've read a great deal about him, and there hasn't been all these people come out and said he sexually did this or he did that. This simply hasn't been there. He's been mostly known for suing people. Uh, speaking his mind when it wasn't acceptable, whether it was being academia or politics or you know, social matters. Um, he got death threats all the time for standing up for, for people who were different than he were, you know, standing up against racism. So in, in many ways, he, he, he was on the, uh, I felt the moral edge of things and doing the right thing. Uh, that simply wouldn't, wouldn't be one of the, uh, the better things that he was uh, accused of doing. Although I don't know if accused is the right word. He did do it. I guess it all depends on how you define it. It certainly wasn't proper. Any way you could put that. But it doesn't seem to be a history in that sort of thing. So it was an isolated thing, something dumb. And, uh, and that pretty much went out of it. He himself was actually sued at least twice. Because uh, one of the things that people are not aware of is that he became so well known amongst the publishing circles in the publishing houses when they still had some strength and merit back in the day. That they gave him authority over a couple anthologies. And he put a couple of them together. And basically collected lots of different writing people. And then many a times later on. Uh, one of them. There were some disputes about royalties. Or stuff being put in there correctly. And um, who knows how well he might have put that together. As a manager of those kind of manuscripts. So there were, they were people upset about that. Another instance. One wasn't put out ever. And people were mad about that. Because you know the rights could be trapped up in that. You know, what do you do in, in those sort of instances? There was, there were people mad at him about about some of those some of those projects, you know. But I think in the balance of things, more people were happy with him about him standing up for writing, him standing up for some of the, the social things in, in in America back then that you know had had some real merit. And I really thought that in many instances they thought he was a force for literature and, and definitely a force for good. Does this make him some perfect angelic figure? No, it doesn't. Okay. All right. Uh, any, any given day, I, I can't tell you how many times that I probably uh, use a curse word, <laughs> you know, outside of the show and outside of work and, you know, try to wait from the kids. And um, and I, I, I'm told that uh, Harlan Ellison, uh, I mean, that was literally uh, like most of his language. So he was definitely an abrasive guy that didn't, didn't play around. And uh, but uh, he did speak his mind and in many instances he spoke the truth. He stood up for who he was as a writer and as an individual, you know. Certainly, in many instances, he felt as a man. He was not going to be bullied by anybody. And uh, to me, I think those are those are incredible merits, are things that we should pass on to other writers uh, to, to see and to, under, to understand. Uh, mainly because I, I find that way too many writers these days are just way too, it's just too timid. And I, I, to me, that to me that's bothersome. I'm not suggesting to anybody out there that is timid and that's listening to the show, you need to be like Harlan Ellison. <laughs> or you need to be like Mark Anthony Rossi because I have a, a long history of this sort of stuff, including including how to hit a few people. Uh, it wasn't writing related, though, but, you know, bullies, and I don't care. You know, that that's... You know, if I ever have to get in action on anybody, it's because of that. Because I just will not tolerate that kind of garbage. I won't. I'll even tolerate that less than somebody being just being a, a bigoted fool. Because sometimes th those people you can't save. You know, let God deal with them. Because you're not going to talk them out of being idiotic like that. But you can stop somebody from being a bully. Promise me. <laughs> it can be done. And I've done it already. I could write a book on... How to beat the hell out of a bully, you know, and turn him around because that's what will happen. I'm serious because it's it's a bit of a condition that you can beat out of somebody. So I understand where he was coming from. That I can definitely do that. But what I would say about that is simply this. OK, what you want to adopt from something like that is the basic premises that we're talking about over here. OK, you can't write a book 
and not defend it. I don't even care if it's not a good book. You still should be defending it. You, you can't go around walking the earth. I'm a writer. I'm this, I'm that. And then somebody berates you, gives you a hard time, or is treating you unfair, and you just walk away. Yeah, whatever. Uh, I want to be the good guy. Yeah, yeah. you'll be the good guy. You'll be the good weak guy that everybody walks over. Because you're not going to be the good guy the way you think you is. Because it doesn't work that way. Okay? If you're not willing to trade a word or trade a punch now and then, you know, I, I don't know what, what, what good are you going to be then for anything else. How can you write something so important and, and, and then just let everything else go to the side? You know? I used to know somebody that, that did that until I literally bit into that person. I'm like, let me get this straight here. You write about racism all day long, but you're in a crowd of people saying the N-word and you, you won't call them out. Oh, they don't mean it that way. Or oh, my favorite one. Well, Mark, they're black, so I, I, right, right, you have every right. The, the word is, is not only evil, it, it shouldn't be spoken. It, it simply shouldn't even be in the, the vocabulary, period. It's not necessary ever before, and it's certainly not necessary ever again. I don't care who says it. Be black if you want. I'll call you out in a heartbeat. I do it all the time. I even tell my kids, don't let me catch you and listen to the music and that, that word's in there because you're going to have a serious problem with me. You hear something like that, you turn it off to some other song. You, you don't listen to junk like that. Now, people can talk all day long about whether that's a double standard or not when somebody from that culture says that. I don't know. I'm not really in, in the position to say it's a double standard. All I can say is it's unacceptable, no matter who the hell says it, period. Got to have one standard. Forget about double standards. One standard. Shouldn't be done. Call people out on that. Don't write about that all day long. Don't talk about it all day long. And then when someone else is doing it right in front of you, oh, no, I'm just, I, need, I need to go and get have a espresso now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe you need to throw the espresso in their face. Or maybe you need to put the espresso down and challenge these people. But... No, you don't walk away and have an espresso. That's just the way I'm talking about here. All right, this is what we're talking about with writing. All right, you gotta, you can't just be a writer. You gotta actually be in it sometimes. That's the best writing, and that's also sometimes the best things you gotta do. It's not always gonna be trouble free, folks. But guess what? You'll feel better about the world and about yourself because you did something. Okay, you can't work all day long talking about I wish the world was better, and then you don't do crap about it. Or my favorite writer. Write all about how the world can be better, but they don't do a damn thing. They don't pick the trash up from the garbage. They don't tell somebody the dog is, is taking a poop on, on somebody's sidewalk. They don't stop the person from using racial derogatory language. They don't, text, they don't stop somebody from being a sexist fool in their office when this is an unacceptable practice. And I'm not even the politically correct person. Anybody knows me, I'm so far from that. You would laugh hearing me say this. But I understand that you can't walk into an office as a single woman trying to raise your family and you have an atmosphere of people leering and saying stuff like that, it's completely unacceptable. It's actually immoral. And you should be doing something about that. Even if it has to be pulling the person to the side privately, listen, you need to cut that crap out because I'm not going to tolerate that either. You want to go talk about that in your off time? That's your business. When you're in my office, it's my business. It's not a hard thing to do, folks. All right? You don't have to be a hero. Okay, but you don't have to be helping villains either because that's what you do when you don't write about something important, when you don't talk about something important, when you don't point out something important, you're helping a villain. That's, that's really what it is. And I think deep down inside, Harlan Ellison understood that, like I understand that. That's part of my own philosophy on many things. I didn't always put it in words, but it really comes to that. I don't like the bully. I will kick the bully's ass, and I don't want to help a villain. Okay, I might not always be the person that's going to help the good person. I, I might not be that person sometimes. Sometimes I'm like, you need to figure this crap out for yourself. But I will always be the person that figures out how to knock the villain down. I Not only do I find some enormous weird pleasure in that, okay? But I honestly think that that's Mark's contribution to making a better world. I'm looking out for that villain and I'm looking to kick his ass. Knock his legs from underneath him. Punch him in the face. Put him down to where he belongs. Because as long as he's up there, he's out there hurting people. And if the good people want to do anything I'm thinking about it, well, I guess I'm going to do something about it then. Whether I'm a, a, another type of villain or just a weird good person or somebody in between, hell if I know. I'm just a writer. That's all I ever was. 
And if you find out some of the final words from Harlan Ellison, that's all he's ever going to tell you. Just a damn writer. Trying to, trying to do something that, that has an impact. Trying to say something that hasn't been said before. And in the end, trying to be a person that has some respect and maybe, you know, gets a little bit in return. You're not going to get a lot sometimes, but, you know, I agree with him. You should get at least a little. You have some. You can't just have people putting you down left and right because they don't agree with this and they don't agree with that. You know, it's not hard to say. Hey, I like that book, but I, not everything in it is about me, or I can't get into everything. But you know, it was it was put together well. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, but sometimes when someone doesn't like you personally, they you know they go overboard. You know, I'm sure there's probably some instances for this man where he went overboard when he shouldn't. God knows he did that with that whole. Stupid, you know, reaching for the breast thing. But in the end, the sum total of, the, uh, of this man was a, a, a great writer. Uh, somebody that uh, that lived in my day who I actually got a chance to meet. I, I've never met any of the writers that, that I admired because they were all dead by the time I read them. That wasn't on purpose. It just sort of happened that way. I'm not exactly young myself over here. But I was so happy to, to meet him. Uh, once at a book signing and once at a, a science fiction convention. He, he's really popular in many of these things. If you ever watched, the, um, they had a science fiction show uh, during um, Babylon 5. They do a little clip along with the show. They let him do that where he did a little commentary. So they did that for a couple of years. And you, even the commentary he did on that little little brief uh, video clip that they had on, on the TV show was just enormous. He, he had so much integrity and, and so much vision and, and and so much literature in them but you know he had a lot of gall and he had a lot of brass and he had a lot of like you know we, we say in, in jersey he had a lot of balls and and to me I, I, I that to me that's appealing because i don't see enough of that anymore you know i don't i don't see that in the in the generation that i'm from sometimes and i certainly don't see it in the generation that that that's following me and that this is not to say that i'm I'm criticizing them and they're not going anywhere because I don't, I don't believe that's the case. I think that's the wrong thing to do. But I like to see more more moxie in them, like they used to say. A little bit more verve, you know, and a little less, you know, Xbox this and PlayStation 7 that or whatever the hell those games are. I don't even follow them, but, you know, get off of them and read a book, please. Yeah, yeah that's right, even the ebook. I'm okay with that too. All right? But, um,. We need we need more writers like that, and and I like to see more of that. Um, I met a few already that you know they really have that kind of verve, and I really like that a, a lot. And I certainly do whatever I can to support them. You know, not everyone is like that. Some people are personally more reserved, but then they their writing it has a real punch. You know, we got a couple of female writers that I promote, uh, Linda Imbler in, in particular. You know, that, that that really can give you that that punch and and, and get you there. You know, but somebody that, you know, I, I think ultimately is, is a, a lovely retired teacher and, and more of a, a, a small, a small spoken person. But, you know, they're writing just that, that little hit you. And, and you want to see that, too. So I'm happy for that. And I support that because that's what I believe on doing, you know. But I, I like to have some loud ones out there, too. <laughs> and so I try to promote those as, as much as possible. And I'm, I'm always a. Uh, Happy to do so, and I've befriended some more uh, newer ones, especially from from Canada. So it's always uh, exciting to, to to see and, and hear those voices. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed that uh, thoughts on on uh, Harlan Ellison. Uh, remember, because I call these shows thoughts, is because I'm going to pick and choose what I feel is the most important to talk about. Does it mean that in the big context of everybody's life and career, that was the most important thing? Maybe not. That's my opinion. Okay. But it's an, you know, our show, and I, I can't go on, you know, putting 50, 60 years of somebody's life in it. In the case of Alan Hellison, like 50 books. It's not possible. And, and, and quite frankly, I don't think all the 50 books are the same. They're so different, and I like more more uh, others. So you, you're still free to check out his catalog and, and find out some of the things I'm talking about. You might even find out some new things as well. Everybody looks at people with different eyes. You got some people that might look at him as, as being a you know, more of an old-fashioned throwback figure than some of the people that are here today. Can Harlan Ellison uh, survive the environment we have now? I, I think so, but he'd probably be under a lot more attack, you know? But uh, still, uh, he would have withstood it because that's the kind of human being he was. All right, folks, until next time, God bless. This is Strength to Be Human, episode 84.
Classic Spotlight. Thoughts on Harlan Ellison. Take care. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by purchasing an ebook at Soma Publishing, www.somapublishing.com.